All right, I'm going to focus in on the uh, central chapters of Judges. Um, on your notes, I have some uh, references to things that I want to talk about with Gideon. But in addition to Gideon, I want to spend a little bit of time talking about uh, Abimelech, because Abimelech is, as I said, the one judge who actually takes the title of king. And that, uh, that whole episode throws an important light on what Judges is telling us about kingship. Um, but uh, uh, the, the judgeship of Gideon begins in the aftermath, uh, the, uh, in the aftermath of Deborah and Barak, uh, who deliver Israel uh, along with the jail. Uh, and um, uh, they were oppressed by Jabin, king of Canaan. Israelites did evil in the sight of the Lord again in the beginning of chapter 6, and the Lord delivers them into the hand of Midian. And it's the Midianites that are uh, going to be uh, Gideon's enemy. Uh, and I'm going to break into the middle of the chapter, or toward the, not right at the beginning of the chapter of uh, Judges 6, to where Gideon is introduced. So the Midianites are oppressing, the Midianites are uh, stealing their crops um, or destroying their crops. And so we have this opening scene, verse 11 of uh, Judges 6. Then the angel of the Lord came and sat under the oak that was at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abiezrites, as his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress in order to save it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. And Gideon said, O my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all the miracles which our father told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord looked at him and said, Go in this your strength and deliver Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? And he said to him, O Lord, how shall I deliver Israel? Behold, my father is the least in Manasseh, and I am the youngest in my father's house. But the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat Midian as one man. So Gideon said to him, Now that I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it is thou who speakest with me. Please do not depart from here until I come back to thee, and bring out my offering and lay it before thee. And he said, I will remain until you return. Okay. Several things about that opening introduction to Gideon. Uh, it's the angel of the Lord coming. This is the angel that appeared earlier in the book of Judges and brought charges against Israel because, of the, because they're breaking the covenant and told them that they were going to be oppressed by Canaanites because of their unfaithfulness. Uh, and the an angel, angel of Yahweh, uh, we, this touches on something we talked a little bit about yesterday, at least during the breaks. Uh, the angel of Yahweh identified as the angel of Yahweh in verse 11, but then identified as Yahweh in verse 14 uh, and 16. So you have this uh, double identification of this personage who is speaking to Gideon. Is it Yahweh or is it the angel of Yahweh? Uh, and that, that, uh, that uh, doubling, that back and forth is uh, common uh, when the angel of Yahweh appears, uh, where the angel of Yahweh seems to be distinct from Yahweh and yet is identified with him. That's one reason for thinking the angel of Yahweh is a theophany. He's the Lord in some kind of visible form. Uh, and the distinction, the unity and distinction between the angel of Yahweh and Yahweh suggests that there's a, uh, are, there's a kind of 
hint of what's later revealed as the father-son relationship and distinction in uh, the New Testament. So the angel of Yahweh, the Malach of Yahweh, is the messenger or the sent one of Yahweh, but is also Yahweh. So there's Yahweh as the one who is sent. There's the Yahweh who sends. Uh, there's one Yahweh, and yet there's this distinction between sender and sent that is revealed in the New Testament as father and son. So this is another passage that suggests that. Uh, when the angel of Yahweh comes to uh, Gideon, Gideon is in the wine press threshing. The reason he's in the wine press threshing is because um, the Midianites have been stealing the grain of the Israelites, and he's trying to hide from the Midianites while he's threshing and separating wheat from chaff. It's probably not a great place to thresh. Um, uh, it's, uh, you have, uh, um, it's in an enclosed space. Um, you could maybe separate the wheat and the chaff by trampling it down in a wine press, but then you still need to winnow it, which means you need to get the chaff blown away, and you can't do that in a wine press because the wind doesn't blow through a wine press. If it's big enough for him to be in uh, threshing, then it's probably not going to be, uh, he's not going to be able to get the, the, the wind that he needs to bear the chaff away. So he's hiding, and it's kind of a, it, it's a somewhat, uh, um, somewhat comical scene of him trying to uh, beat out uh, grain and threshing in a wine press. But there's also a positive side to that, because this, Gideon, in his first introduction, is associated with grain, and also with wine, um, which uh, in, in our New Covenant situation uh, should, I think, put us in mind of the food of, uh, food of the church, which is bread and wine. But within the Old Testament, those, uh, those two products, those two foods, are singled out uh, as central uh, central blessings and gifts of God, uh, really from the creation on. Uh, the day, th day three of the creation, uh, the Lord uh, calls on the earth, he commands the earth, and the earth sprouts grasses yielding seed, which means grain plants, and trees bearing fruit with seed in the fruit. So grain plants and fruit trees, uh, those are the two specific kinds of vegetation that are mentioned in, uh, in Genesis 1. There may have been other kinds of vegetation that, were, uh, that, were, that sprang out of the ground on day three, but there's a general term for vegetation. Vegetation, and then it says uh, grass yielding seed, fruit trees bearing fruit with, with seed in it. Uh, so you have fruit and grains that are already set up in the creation account as, uh, the, as, as kind of primary, primordial uh, food sources. When Israel goes into the land, the promise is that they're going into land flowing with milk and honey. We know that phrase. But it's also a land that is full of, uh, the promised blessing is uh, grain, new wine, and oil, okay? which are ingredients for, you know, gr uh, grain and oil are ingredients for bread. And of course, the new wine, the grapes, uh, are uh, the, the drink that goes with bread. Now, these are, the, these are the blessings of the land. The land is a Eucharistic land. The land is a land that produces uh, the food of uh, festivity in the presence of God. So Gideon is hiding from the Midianites, 
even though he's addressed as a valiant warrior, a mighty man, um, he looks a, look, looks a little comical in this situation, but he's associated with these two gifts of the land, uh, and there's a, uh, an anticipation of a future deliverance that's going to restore Israel to the fruit of the land. Right now, the land is still producing things, but the Midianites are getting, getting, uh, getting the uh, benefit of the land because they're stealing the produce of the land from the Israelites. But Gideon is going to be a, uh, a bread producer and a wine producer, uh, not literally, but he's going to uh, bring Israel back to those blessings of the land and, uh, and give them uh, give them those, uh, again, those face, that basic food and drink. Um, Gideon's response when uh, the angel of the Lord addresses him is uh, 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 confusion and doubt, right? Uh, if, if, I'm, uh, if the Lord is with us, as, as the angel says, if the Lord is with us, why is this happening to us? And then, more specifically, when the angel says, you're going to be the one to deliver Israel from the Midianites, he raises doubts about his own capacity to do that. Um, how can I do this? My family is least in Manasseh. I'm the youngest of my father's house. Uh, I'm too little to do this. I'm not the one to do this. And then he asks for signs that would uh, reassure him that the Lord is going to be with him. Uh, this is a exchange that I should remind us of the exchange between Yahweh, the angel of Yahweh, and Moses at the burning bush, right? When the Lord tells Moses that he's going to be sent back and Moses raises objections, one objection after the other, uh, uh, I can't talk, I, 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 I'm not uh, eloquent, um, I'm not the man for the job. Uh, we, see that, we see the same kind of thing in the call of Jeremiah, interestingly, later on in the Old Testament. But this is one of the hints that of a specific hint that Gideon is being called to a kind of Moses-like uh, vocation. He's going to be uh, the deliverer for Israel. Uh, Moses led Israel out of Egypt to the edge of a land of grain and vineyards. Uh, Gideon is going to be another Moses who's going to lead Israel out from under the Midianites and back to enjoy the produce of the land. Uh, the, first, the first sign that he gets has to do with the angel's identity. He offers a kind of, uh, a kind of offering. He brings out a kid, unleavened bread, uh, and he presents them, and the angel of Yahweh touches the rock, becomes, becomes an altar, it bursts into flame, and then the angel of the Lord disappears from him. Similar to the scene that we have later on in Judges with the Manoah's, uh, the, the, the uh, annunciation of Samson's birth, where they meet again a figure who uh, ascends, he actually ascends in the fire and smoke of an offering. Um, the, most the more famous sign is what uh, is uh, given at the end of the chapter. Before we get there, let me, uh, um, let me pick up in verse 25. I don't want to get ahead of myself. So he, the angel of the Lord has departed, and Gideon has built an altar in the place where the angel appeared to him. When there's a theophany, you build an altar that becomes a place of worship because that's where God has appeared. You expect God to reappear and to be present in that same place, so you build an altar as a permanent place of worship. And then Gideon begins his, uh, begins his vocation uh, by a striking at the uh, root cause of the Midianite oppression. Before he begins to fight the Midianites, he takes on Israel's idolatry. 
Um, that's, uh, as I said uh, before the break, that is the root cause of all of Israel's political turmoil. That's, the, why, that's why they're under the Midianites. Uh, and so at night he goes and uh, takes down the altar of Baal. Let me read a little bit of that from verse 25 on. Now the same night it came about that the Lord said to him, Take now your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal, which belongs to your father, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it, and build an altar to Yahweh your God on top of the stronghold in an orderly manner, and take a second bull which offer, uh, and offer an ascension offering with the word of the Asherah, with the wood of the Asherah, sorry, which you had taken down. So he's going to dismantle the altar of Baal. It's going to be turned into a site for the worship of God. Uh, he's going to actually burn the wood of uh, Asherah, the, uh, the, the uh, female, the deity, the goddess who's a consort of Baal. And he's going to take the wood of that idol and destroy it. And that's going to become part of a sacrifice that he's offering to the Lord. There's a kind of mini conquest going on here. The conquest was all about purging the land of idolatry and getting his carrying that out in, the specific, in this specific circumstance of uh, destroying the altar of Baal that, uh, um, that belongs to his father. So verse 27, Then Gideon took to, uh, ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had spoken to him. It came about because he was too afraid of his father's household and the men of the city to do it by day that he did it by night. Um, this, the, the reason it's given here is because of his fear. It fits with what we saw at the beginning of the account with uh, Gideon being in the wine press, hiding from the Midianites, uh, trying to protect his grain stash from the Midianites. Uh, he's not entirely confident here, uh, but uh, providentially and symbolically, the fact that there's this strike at the idol at night is significant. Um, nighttime deliverances and nighttime uh, transitions and changes are very, very common in scripture. Uh, things happen at night so that a new, something new dawns the next morning. Passover happens at midnight. Uh, the, uh, angel, the angel of death goes through Egypt and kills the firstborn at midnight. And that's the beginning of Israel's deliverance from Egypt. So the transition takes place at night. The next morning they're on their way out of Egypt and they're going through the Red Sea. You think of the book of Esther. Um, Haman's got this plot against, uh, against the Jews in uh, Persia and Susa. Uh, and uh, the turning point comes when uh, Ahasuerus has a sleepless night and he asks for the Chronicles to be read and he's reminded of Mordecai's service to him and he wants to uh, reward Mordecai. And then when Mordecai and when Haman comes in the next morning, he asks Haman to honor Mordecai. And that's the beginning of the humiliation of Haman, the downfall of Haman. But it begins in the middle of the night with a sleepless, uh, a king who's suffering from insomnia. Uh, the, transition, the transition takes place at night. Uh, in the midst of the darkness, God is beginning to start a new day. Okay, that's the, that's the imagery that we have here. So even though Gideon is doing this out of fear, uh, symbolically and in the providence of God, it also fits with this other thematic thing. So uh, he does this at night, and then in the next morning, we have a new situation, a new day dawns, literally and also theologically. When the men of the city arose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was torn down, and the Asherah which it was beside it was cut down, and the second bull was offered in the altar which had been built. Then they said to one another, Who did this thing? And when they searched around and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, did this thing. 
Then the men of the city said to Joash, Bring out your son that he may die, for he has torn down the altar of Baal, and indeed he has cut down the Asherah which was beside it. Um, strange kind of uh, situation for an Israelite town to be in. Uh, in Deuteronomy, if an Israelite town turned from the Lord to serve idols, the town was supposed to be destroyed. If you had a false prophet who was trying to seduce the people away from serving the Lord to serving another god, he was supposed to be executed. And this is, they've inverted this. Now you've got an Israelite town that is using its uh, civic authority, its public authority to, uh, uh, to uh, establish and to defend idolatrous worship, the worship of Baal and Asherah. Okay. Um, so again, that's again reinforces the point I w- I've made several times already. The problem is with Israel. Uh, the problem is Israel's idolatry. The problem, uh, uh, if, if Israel pleased the Lord, the Midianites would be at peace with them. The Midianites would be fearful of them. The Lord would make them fear the Israelites if the, if the Israelites were faithful. Uh, but because they're not, uh, because they're defending the idols, uh, the Lord puts, gives them over to the Midianites. Verse 31, uh, Joash said to all who stood by him, will you contend for Baal or will you deliver him? Whoever will plead for him, let him uh, shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself, because someone has torn down his altar. Uh, therefore, that day he named him Jeroboam. Uh, uh, that is to say, let Baal contend against him, because he had torn down his altar. Okay. So Joash takes his son's side. That's, that's, that's a, a notable uh, change for Joash, because the, the, the altar, or the, the Baal has been, the altar to Baal has been on his property. It belonged to Joash. But now once the idol has fallen uh, and Joash sees the powerlessness, the impotence of Baal, uh, he can't defend, uh, he can't contend for himself. He needs to have his worshipers contend for him. Uh, he takes Gideon's side and protects Gideon from this uh, mob that wants to execute him. Okay. So it's only after Gideon has uh, attacked the root of the problem, attacked the idol, that uh, he is going to go out and fight against the, Gibeon, uh, against the Midianites. But before that, he asked for another, uh, another sign. And that's right at the end of chapter 6. Gideon said to God, If thou wilt deliver Israel through me as thou hast spoken, behold, I will put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece only, and is dry on all the ground... Then I will know that thou didst deliver Israel through me as thou hast spoken. And it was so. When he arose early in the morning and squeezed the fleece, he drained the dew from the fleece, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, Do not let, the anger, uh, let thine anger burn against me, that I may speak once more. Please let me make a test once more with the fleece. Let it now be dry only on the fleece, and let there be dew all around on the ground. And God did so that night. For it was dry only on the fleece, and dew was on the ground. Okay. So this is a, a, a this is a, 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 a miraculous sign in the sense that it's not a natural, it's not the natural way things would happen. You know, the, uh, a fleece on the ground would get wet only if the ground around it was wet. For all the dew to be concentrated on the fleece uh, and have dry ground around, that's uh, a small, seems like a kind of t- a, a trivial miracle, but it is a miracle. And then the reversing it is again a miracle. Why wouldn't the, the fleece absorb the water, uh, the dew that's around it on the ground? 
So uh, you can kind of see why Gideon would do this, but it, it seems like such a trivial kind of thing uh, that it's uh, by itself, it's hard to see that this would uh, confirm anything to Gideon. Uh, And I think that in order to, we need to recognize that there's a symbolic overtone to the test. It's not just a matter of do something miraculous so that I know you'll be with me, but rather do something miraculous that is a sign of the vocation that you've given me and the victory that you're going to, that you're going to give me. And I think this, this, uh, this double sign does serve that purpose uh, if we can recognize the fleece as a representation of Gideon himself and recognize also due as a symbol of the blessing of God. Uh, uh, the, uh, the text that I would link it to would be uh, Psalm 133, short psalm. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head coming down upon the beard, even upon Aaron's beard, beard. Beard, beard, coming down to the edges of his robe. It is like the dew of Hermon coming down on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded blessing, life forevermore. So you have this, this double image talking about the unity of the brothers of Israel. One image is of the, the priest. Oil flows down from the head, down to the corners of the garments. The priest embodies Israel. And the oil that's poured out on his head is the blessing of God. Or you could say the spirit of God that flows down from the head, which is the priest himself, and flows down over his beard and down to the uh, skirts of the wings of his garments, the skirts of his garments. Uh, that's Israel sharing in the anointing of the head, right? All of Israel sharing in the anointing of the head, which is what happens. That, that is the, that's the, the logic of priesthood in the Old Covenant. All of Israel is a priestly people because they share in the anointing that's placed on only one man, which is the high priest. And of course, it's, it's the, uh, the truth of, of priesthood in the new covenant. Uh, we have, share in a priestly anointing because we're part of the body of the great high priest, Jesus. Okay, that's one image that's used. And then a parallel image is of a mountain. The man and the mountain are being parallel. Okay. You've got a man whose oil is coming down upon his head and flowing out. You've got a mountain, which is also a vertical structure, uh, as uh, uh, Jim Jordan likes to say, mountains are ladders to heaven. You go from the ground, you're getting closer to the sky. Human beings are a kind of mobile mountain, uh, stand on the ground, but we stretch up to the sky. Trees are a kind of ladder to heaven, rooted in the ground, but stretching up to the sky. All of these are, uh, can be parallel symbols of each other. Human beings are like trees, as they are like mountains. So the high priest is like a mountain, and the oil is uh, being compared to the dew that comes down on the Mount Hermon and then flows down uh, and blesses the entire land because water runs downhill. If you've got a, if you've got a well-watered mountain, it's going gonna, it's gonna to water the, uh, the, uh, the, the ground around. When I, was in, when I lived in Idaho, uh, we were in a semi-desert area of Idaho. Uh, Idaho is in the northwest area of the United States. And uh, we were not in a mountainous part of Idaho, but there were, uh, there was, uh, there were a couple of minor mountains around. There's very little rainfall there. Uh, it's a farming area, but the farmers depend almost entirely on snowfall that comes on the mountains. There's snowfall that comes uh, at the foot of the mountains too, but you know, there was often snow on top of 
the mountain that we could that was close by our town when there wasn't snow on the ground in the city. But then that mountain in the spring, that mountain snow would melt and it flowed down and it irrigate the farmland around. That's the that's the image that we have in Psalm 133. That's what that's what Israel is like when it dwells together in unity. It's like uh, sharing in the priestly anointing. It's like the whole land sharing in the uh, dew that comes down on the high place of Israel. I think that's the kind of imagery that we're to see in this test of Gideon. Gideon is like the mountain, the head of the mountain. He's like the head of Israel. He's been selected as the head of the people. Uh, the Lord is going to send his blessing on him and drench him with dew. So the first test, it's Gideon himself, who in spite of the fact that the ground is dry, the ground around the fleece is like a desert, but this one fleece in the midst of dry ground is drenched with the blessing of God. So much that he can squeeze out the fleece and he can get a bowl full of water. That's, that's Gideon personally. But then that has to be followed by the second test, which is uh, that the ground shares in that blessing that comes down on the fleece. So the second test is Gideon, having first received the blessing of God, uh, is squeezed out and the blessing is uh, a wrung from him and then fills the land and makes the land productive again. Okay. I think that's the imagery. So when, is, when, Gideon's, when Gideon delivers Israel in the power of the Spirit, that's what's, that's what's happening. He's, he's been anointed with the Spirit of God. He's been uh, filled, filled with the dew of heaven. And then that dew and that power of the Spirit flows out from him uh, to the rest of the men who are going to accompany him into battle. Uh, and he's going, to, uh, he's going to defeat the Midianites and restore the land to prosperity. Okay. Uh, of course, you know the story of, I imagine you know the story of the battle. Uh, and how he fights the battle. The Lord whittles down the uh, number, of, uh, number of men. So he ends up with only 300 men, a, a remnant of the army that goes with him. But the remnant of the army that shares in the power that the Lord has placed on Gideon. And then uh, the method of battle is an unusual one. Um, Let's uh, look at verse, uh, chapter 7, verse 19. Gideon and, and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they just posted the watch, and they blew the trumpets and smashed the pitchers which were in their hands. So Gideon has given them trumpets, pitchers, and torches. The three companies blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers, and they held torches in their left hands and the trumpets in their hands for blowing and cried out, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And each stood in his place around the camp, and all of the army ran, crying as they fled. And when they blew 300 trumpets, the Lord sent the sword of one man against another throughout the whole army. And the army fled as far as Beth Shita toward Zerorah, uh, as far as the edge of Abel Meloha near Tabith. And the men of Israel were summoned from Naphtali, Naphtali sorry, and Asher and Manasseh, and they pursued Midian. Okay. So, uh, what's happening here? Uh, Clearly, this is not normal warfare. They surround the camp of the Midianites. Uh, they create this confusion in the middle of the night, another nighttime deliverance. Uh, they create this confusion. If you have a bunch of trumpets blowing and the sound of crashing, it sounds like 
you've got a huge army marching down on your encampment. Okay. There's, there's a kind of uh, psychological warfare that Gideon is conducting here. If you're just looking at purely as a, as a military tactic, he fools the Midianites into thinking that there's a lar- much larger army surrounding them than there actually is. Okay. Uh, and then that confu- in that confusion, the Midianites kill each other. This is, this is a, uh, one of the Lord's regular tactics of, uh, 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 one of his ta- regular tactics against his enemies. He turns his enemies against each other and they destroy each other. That happens a number of times in the Old Testament. It happens in uh, the... Uh, uh, in Revelation, uh, when the when the when the harlot city falls, the harlot city falls because uh, she's attacked by the beast. Okay, the beast is an enemy of the saints. The beast is making war on the saints. Uh, the The harlot city is drinking the blood of the saints, another enemy of the saints. But the beast ends up destroying the harlot city. Okay, so the Lord turns his enemies against each other, and that's uh, the in the confusion of all this. Uh, sound and uh, shouting and the uh, the the uh, 300 torches. It it looks like there's a a much larger army there. They they kill each other. Okay. I think it also reminds us of, uh, in certain respects, of the victory at Jericho. Right, uh, where trumpets are blown, a shout goes up, and the walls collapse, and then the Israelites basically do the the mopping up by entering the city where the walls have already come down. So Gideon is adopting a tactic that resembles the tactic that Joshua used at, uh, at Jericho. And yesterday we talked about the liturgical overtones of that battle at Jericho. It's the priests who are leading. It's the, it's the blowing of the trumpets uh, that announce the liberation of the land and the liberation of the inhabitants of the land. Uh, it's, a, it's a liturgical shout, and then the walls come down. And that's what uh, Gideon is doing, something similar to that here, with a kind of shout of praise to the Lord, a shout, a, a sword for Yahweh and for Gideon, the blowing of the trumpets, uh, and then light. I think the other thing that uh, 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 kind of more deeply that's going on here in, uh, uh, is uh, connected with the phenomenon of what's called the glory cloud or the Shekinah glory in the Old Testament. When the Lord appears at Sinai, he comes with a trumpet blast that is so loud that the people can't stand to listen to it. Uh, he comes in a cloud that flashes with fire. It's a storm cloud. He's, he's the god of the storm. Okay. Uh, and that, that's the cloud that comes down on Sinai. That's a cloud that Moses enters on Sinai. That's the cloud that at the end of Exodus transfers from the mountain to the most holy place of the tabernacle. Uh, that's the cloud that defended Israel as they came out of Egypt. Um, that, that's the glory presence of God when the Lord appears uh, in, those, uh, in certain parts of the Old Testament. When the Lord appears, uh, he appears surrounded in this glory environment. Uh, he's surrounded by the hosts, by his heavenly hosts. Uh, the, the most detailed picture we get of that glory cloud is in the early chapters of Ezekiel. When Ezekiel is in uh, Babylon by the river Kibar, and he sees the glory of the Lord coming to him. Note the location. The glory of the Lord, which you think is inhabiting the temple, is coming to visit Ezekiel while Ezekiel is in exile. The Lord has gone into exile with his exiled people and abandoned the house. And that's actually part of the vision that Ezekiel is going to see. 
But when Ezekiel sees this cloud, uh, he is able to see it up close, and it's, it, it's made up of uh, cherubic figures, of uh, angelic figures who have eyes all around, who have six wings, uh, who move in, uh, only in bright angles up down. Uh, a regiment of angelic uh, hosts that surround the Lord. This is the Lord as the divine warrior surrounded by his entourage, his heavenly entourage. Um, and, and I think the, the phenomenal, phenomenologically, if you're looking at, um, if you look, you look at a flock of birds uh, uh, on migration, or sometimes you see a flock of birds that's kind of moving as one thing. That's kind of the phenomenon that, uh, that kind of resembles the phenomena, phenomenology of the, um, the, the appearance of the glory cloud. It would be, it's made, it, when you get it close, you realize it's made up of a lot of, a lot of beings, a lot of angelic beings. But from a distance, it looks like this one thing coming toward you, coming out on Sinai, coming down to the tabernacle. So uh, what Gideon is doing here is kind of replicating that. He creates, out of the 300 men that are with him, he creates a kind of human glory uh, blowing of trumpets like the glory cloud, flashing of lights, uh, a shout, a voice, a loud voice coming from uh, inside, uh, coming from this company, uh, and it's that it's not just the terror of an unknown enemy; they're uh, mediating, as it were, the terror of the Lord coming against Midian, and the Midianites are thrown into confusion and uh, and destroy one another. Okay, so uh, to this point, Gideon is all. Gideon is all a uh, hero. Uh, he's reluctant, hesitant, uh, but then we think of Moses and we think uh, that's, uh, that's uh, maybe not admirable, but it's, it's, not, uh, it's typical. A lot of God's deliverers and prophets have been like this. Uh, but then uh, we've, I want to move to the end of the Gideon account and see what's uh, all right, uh, let's skip on to the end of the Gideon story, beginning of verse uh, 22 of chapter 8. Um, Gideon has defeated the Midianites. He's rescued Israel from this oppressor. He's proven to be a faithful judge. Uh, and he's continuing his faithfulness when Israel approaches him and uh, requests that he, he make his rule of Israel permanent. So the judges are ad hoc leaders of Israel. That is, they, uh, they rise up in order to deliver. They don't establish a dynasty or a succession. Uh, the, the judges rule as the judges are needed. Uh, and uh, otherwise, uh, the rule in Israel, the, the political system of Israel is much more decentralized. Village and town elders, there's no, uh, some, some kind of tribal organization, but there's no overarching political order over the whole nation. A king would be that. A king would be uh, a, a political leader of the entire nation of Israel. And Israel comes to Gideon and asks him to take that role. The men of Israel, this is verse 22, chapter 8, the men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us, both you and your son, also your son's son, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon said to him, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you, but Yahweh shall rule over you. Okay, That's the right answer. Yahweh is the king. And that's really the issue in, in the whole story of Judges. Is Israel acknowledging Yahweh as king? That's, that's the issue of worshiping, worship, worship and idolatry. If you worship an idol, then you're saying Yahweh is not our king. 
Baal is our king, or Molech is our king, or Dagon is our king, not Yahweh. Um, so Gideon points them in the right direction. Uh, you, what you need is not a human king. You need to recognize Yahweh is your king. Uh, but then Yahweh, uh, Gideon goes on, uh, said to them, I will request of you that each of you give me an earring from his spoil, for they had gold earrings because they were Ishmaelites. They said, we will surely give them. So they spread out a garment, every one of them threw an earring in the spoil. And the weight of the gold earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold. That's a lot. Beside the crescent uh, ornaments and pendants and the purple robes which were on the kings of the Midianites, besides the neckbands which were on the camels. And Gideon made it into an ephod and placed it in the city of Ophrah. And all Israel played the harlot with it there so that it became a snare to Gideon and his household. Okay. After Gideon has just said, no, the Lord is going to be your king, he, this, what does this sound like? Gold earrings gathering up to make, to make something from the gold earrings. It's like a golden calf scene. Uh, after he's just said that the Lord is your king, he's acting like Aaron did at the, at the foot of Sinai, and he makes an ephod in the, uh, uh, in the uh, uh, Torah. The ephod is something is a, an article of clothing that the priest would wear, uh, and it, was a, it had a breastplate attached to it. It would be a means of consulting the Lord because the Urim and the Thummim were inside the breast, the, the, the breast piece, uh, and it was a, a way of consulting the Lord. Um, it's not clear what this ephod is. Maybe this is an article of clothing that Gideon is making so that he can function in a kind of priestly capacity. Uh, or maybe it's ephod is being used here as some kind of object of worship, a kind of an image. Uh, it's not clear what, uh, what uh, exactly is happening. If it's, if it's an ephod that's used for consultation, it's still a, an act of uh, unfaithfulness for Israel to consult somebody other than Yahweh. Because there, there is Urim and Thummim. There's an ephod at the tabernacle. And the tabernacle is still around. It's, it's set up in Shiloh. and has been since the time of Joshua. They can go to the tabernacle and they can consult with the priest there. But now they're going to Gideon and his ephod and consulting there. So either way, whether it's an, uh, an image of a god that they're worshiping or a means of consulting the Lord, either way it's an act of idolatry and uh, unfaithfulness to the Lord. So uh, Gideon began his career destroying an idol. Now that he's just beaten the Midianites, he's, lur uh, he's kind of uh, uh, lurching toward idolatry himself. Uh, and then we have this last part in verse 27 and following. Uh, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, that is Gideon, went and lived in his own house. Gideon had 70 sons who were his direct descendants, for he had many wives. You can't get 70 sons from one wife. Don't even, don't even try it. Okay, so he's, he's already gathered a bunch of gold. Now he's got many wives uh, with 70 sons. And his concubine who was in Shechem also bore him a son and named him Abimelech. He's going to be the main character in the next chapter. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died at a ripe old age and was buried in the tomb of his father Joash. Okay. So um, Gideon has had, is, is uh, kind of drifting into idolatry uh, and he's also drifting into a kind of oriental kingship. You know, uh, uh, multiplying wives was normal practice for an ancient king. Uh, and not because ancient kings were particularly lustful, although they probably were. I mean, they had absolute power. Most ancient kings were considered to be semi-divine. If they claimed a woman, they, they couldn't really be resisted. But usually the reason, you had political reasons for multiplying wives too, because you're, 
uh, marrying uh, the daughter of some other king and forming a marriage alliance. Uh, Gideon is probably forming alliances with uh, tribal leaders and other leaders around Israel uh, by uh, taking their women into his house. And uh, he's, he's basically creating a harem, which has both a sexual and a political function. Right? Uh, but this is something that's uh, directly prohibited to Israelite kings. We'll look at this uh, tomorrow when we begin uh, talking about uh, Samuel. Uh, the, the thing that Israelite kings are prohib- uh, the things they're, um, the things they cannot do, they cannot multiply gold and silver, they cannot multiply horses and chariots, and they cannot multiply wives. Uh, and here Gideon is multiplying wives uh, and uh, has many sons uh, and uh, already showing even though he's acknowledged Yahweh as king, he's uh, becoming a kind of uh, pagan king himself. It, uh, there's probably other things uh, than what I'm going to say, but the, the, I'd, I'd link that up with um, the eventual split between Ephraim, which is the, the name of the northern kingdom, and Judah in the south. Uh, that uh, there, uh, The tensions between the northern and southern tribes are already evident at the time of the judges. Uh, during David's reign, that's one of the things that, uh, there's, there's a couple of incident, incidents that indicate continuing tensions between uh, Judah and the other tribes uh, in, in the time of uh, Saul and then again in the time of David. That's one of the things that Absalom exploits when he tries to make his bid for kingship. Uh, he uh, uh, tries to uh, exploit those divisions and, and present himself as a friend of uh, the non-Judah tribes. So, um, uh, I don't know if we'll take time to look at that, but uh, if we don't, I can come back tomorrow and talk more about that. Uh, but, you have, but you have these tensions that are already rumbling uh, for a couple of centuries before they break out at the time of Solomon, after Solomon, and you have a split in the tribe. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, yeah that's, that's a good point. That, I have to qualify what I was saying. I do think that the intertribal tensions and judges are... Uh, linked up with the intertribal tensions that that eventually produced the the division of the kingdom after Solomon's reign. So, but the, yeah, the, these are the the lines are not between Judah and Ephraim. But um, the uh, let me step back and put it in a broader context. One of the major kinds of conflicts in the Bible is a brother brother conflict. Uh, Cain and Abel, uh, Esau and Jacob. Uh, Joseph and his brothers, right? And Judah and Israel, uh, northern and southern kingdoms, are that's a brother-brother conflict. And so what we're having in Judges is uh, the nearest kin are the ones that, are, uh, that have conflict. And th- that might seem counterintuitive, uh, but in, in some ways it's the, it's the opposite because uh, that is the, the, uh, the rivals that we most resent are the rivals that are closest to us, you know? Uh, we don't uh, we don't tend to think a lot about um, the, uh, the 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 fact that you uh, that uh, Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon, is a multi-billionaire. Uh, occasionally, I think about Jeff Bezos for various reasons. I don't feel envy really for Jeff Bezos. He's just completely out of my world. Um, if my brother became a billionaire, 
and surpassed me uh, in that you know uh, massive way. That's you know that's right in my face. So rivalries are in some ways more intense the closer people get, and I think that that's a I think that's a, that's that is a general human tendency, but it's something that the Bible seems to continuously highlight. The tensions are between brothers. We have you have tensions between you have uh, conflicts between strangers. That's that's another kind of conflict in Scripture. But the tensions between brothers are uh, are uh, quite you know another example uh, the brothers in David's house. I mean. Uh, after after his sin with Bathsheba, it's nothing but fraternal conflict until the end of the book of Samuel and into Kings, into the early part of Solomon's reign. It's brother against brother. So, yeah, I'd I'd put it into that that general uh, theme of the Bible. Okay, I I think that, I mean, in the immediate context, I think what we're looking at here is just uh, Gideon uh, continuing to prosecute the battle until the enemy is fully vanquished, and even even to the point of driving them across the land, I'm not sure there's any kind of negative thing uh, with uh, the the suggestion, the, the fact that they that they leave the land and cross over. I mean, there are territories that belong to Israel that are on the other side of the Jordan, and so Gideon is expelling the Midianites completely out of the land and chasing them all the way out of uh, Israelite territory. That's that's just the surface reading, but there may be. There may be something more than that. Ah. Oh, uh, yeah. There, there are places that, that this happens elsewhere. Uh, there are places apparently where J- the Jordan is can be forded, uh, whether by some kind of uh, uh, ferry system, or there are places where it might be shallow enough during certain times of year, at least, for them to get by. So, yeah. Uh, but the, the, okay, I, I missed the I missed the point of the question. If you go back to Joshua and look at the crossing of the Jordan at that time, there's a, a specific reference to the time of year that the crossing happens, which is the time of year when the Jordan is at its height. And so the fact that it's the fact that they can get through it at that time of year uh, is because of God's miraculous intervention. But other times of the year, uh, the Jordan would be easier to cross. Yeah. Um, okay. So that, that, uh, the latter part of the, uh, the judgeship of Gideon sets us up for what happens with Abimelech. As I mentioned, Abimelech, is, uh, his name actually means uh, my father is king. And uh, that's the name that Gideon gives him. You could say it's an act of piety. Gideon has identified Yahweh as the king of Israel. And so when he names his son Avimelech, he's saying, uh, I want you to remember uh, that your father, Yahweh, is king. Uh, but given what uh, Gideon is doing toward the end of his life, whatever Gideon's original intents with the name, uh, it takes on this, uh, this uh, overtone that uh, Gideon is actually claiming kingship even though he's, uh, he's, um, he's renounced it publicly, he's still claiming kingship for himself. Uh, Abimelech is the one uh, uh, judge in, uh, in, the, in the whole book that takes on the title of king. So we have hints of kingship in the reign of Gideon, but Abimelech is the one uh, exemplar of kingship in the book of Judges. And he is not uh, a good example of righteous kingship. Gideon, in the, insofar as he's acting like a king, he's not a, uh, a Torah-observing king. 
He's not doing kingship the way the Torah requires. And uh, Abimelech uh, is the same. Well, that again is important for thinking about the end of the book. What does it mean to say there is no king in Israel? Every man does right in his own eyes. Is the book of Judges ending by saying what we really need is a king? Um, or is it saying, uh, as, uh, uh, as Gideon said, at least publicly, uh, Yahweh is king, and the Israel's problem is that they don't acknowledge Yahweh is king. We'll come back to that question. Let me read the first uh, 15 verses of chapter 9, which gives us the beginning of the uh, story of Abimelech. Abimelech, the son of Jeroboam, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives. So uh, the, uh, he has a connection with, a uh, uh, maternal connection with Shechem. Spoke to them in the whole clan of the household of his mother's father, saying, Speak now in the hearing of all the leaders of Shechem. Which is better for you that 70 men, all the sons of Jeroboam, rule over you, or that one man rule over you? Remember, I am of your bone and of your flesh. Much more efficient to have one king than to have 70 people ruling over. Uh, he doesn't exactly say he wants to eliminate all of his brothers, but that's, the, that's what he does, and that's the kind of the hint that he leaves. And he's forming an alliance with the city of Shechem, that's going to be uh, the basis. That's going to be the base of his operation, the base of his power, that alliance with that city. And his mother's brothers spoke all these words on the behalf in the hearing of all the leaders of Shechem, and they were inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, "He is our brother." And they gave him seventy pieces of silver from the house of Baal Barith, and uh, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows, and they followed him. So he gets a, a band of thugs. They went to his father's house at Ophrah and killed his brothers, the sons of Jeroboam, 70 men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jeroboam, was left, for he hid himself. Okay, a couple things about that. One is, um, uh, this links up with what I was saying in, in response to Mike's question. Uh, one, of the, one of the problems that the Bible identifies when you have multiple wives, many, many sons, is the rivalry that exists between sons, and particularly sons of different mothers. Uh, the rivals in David's house are brothers who have different mothers. Amnon does not have the same mother as uh, uh, Absalom, and Absalom doesn't have the same mother as Adonijah. None of them have the same mother as Solomon. Okay? Uh, so you're in, a king's, you're, you're in a king's palace, a king's court. Uh, the different queens, princesses, the, parts, the members of the harem, are semi-autonomous. They have their own zone of authority. They have their own children. They want to promote them. And they, you, you, have a, you basically divide your house by multiplying wives. And that's what's happening here with the house of uh, Gideon. His house is being divided because he multiplied wives and because uh, 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 the, uh, yeah, you, have, you have sons of different mothers and uh, Abimelech is... Uh, 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 using that situation as a pretext to go after his brothers and to kill them. Uh, verse 5 says that he killed all of his brothers on one stone. Um, that has overtones of a kind of sacrificial act. Uh, this, is, this is a slaughter of his brothers. It's fratricide. But it also has a, a hint that he's doing this as a kind of religious act uh, and uh, there's a kind of human sacrifice that's going on that's going secure to secure his soul power as king. Uh, the problem for any king who wants to eliminate his rivals is that you might miss someone. Okay? 
if you try to kill all the all the uh, all your brothers who might also want to be king, uh, you got to make sure you get them all. Uh, this happens in the in the book of Kings and Chronicles where. Uh, 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 Jehu slaughters all the house of Ahab, including some members of the house of Judah, house of David, uh, and then, uh, oh, what is her name? Somebody, her name, anyway, his daughter, who becomes queen in Judah, slaughters all the royal seed, all the, all the sons of, uh, that are in the line of David, except she doesn't realize that she missed one, who is Joash, and the, the line of David continues because there's one infant, he's, he's just an infant at the time of the slaughter, Athaliah. Uh, Athaliah misses him, and then he comes back, and seven years later, he's put, in, put, into, put on the throne. Okay. You've got to make sure you get them all. So tip, if you're going to try to kill all your rivals, you know, uh, you're in a church, your elders are giving you trouble, you want to eliminate your elders so that you can be the sole guy, don't miss any of them. That's what the, that's what the Bible's teaching us here. Uh, and, but he misses somebody. He misses Jotham. And uh, Jotham is going to return, and in verses 7 through 15, a great little parable about kingship, one of the, one of the great statements about kingship in the Bible. Uh, when they told Jer- J- uh, Jotham, he went and stood on the top of Mount Gerizim and lifted his voice and called out. Thus he said to them, Listen to me, O men of Shechem, that God may listen to you. Once the trees came forth to anoint a king over them, and they said to the olive tree, Reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, Shall I leave my fatness? with which God and men are honored, and go to wave over the trees? Then the tree said to the fig tree, You come, reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, Shall I leave my, leave my sweetness and my good fruit to wave over the trees? They said to, uh, the tree said to the vine, You come, reign over us. But the vine said to them, Shall I leave my new wine, which cheers God and man, and go wave over your trees? Finally, all the trees said to the bramble, You come, reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, If in truth you are anointing me as king over you, come and take refuge under my shade. But if not... May fire come out from the bramble and consume the cedars of Lebanon. Do you have cedars of Lebanon here in Ethiopia? Anyone seen a cedar of Lebanon? A full-grown cedar of Lebanon? They are enormous trees. Okay, branches going out that are the size of normal tree trunks, and they go out. If you have a if you have a large cedar of Lebanon, the branches are so large they would just if they were left unsupported they would just be on the ground. So if you have them in a, a botanical garden, you have, you have to have some kind of supports. Uh, and when you go underneath it, I mean, it's, I don't know how wide they get. They're just enormous trees. And you go underneath it, it feels like you're entering into a house. I mean, it feels like you're indoors uh, because the tree is so thick and so huge. Okay. Uh, but the, the cedars of Lebanon are going to be consumed by the fire that comes from the bramble. The highest and largest and most grand trees are going to be burned down by this, uh, the, the bramble that just grows, grows upon the ground, okay? So this parable is uh, picking up on a number of things that are common biblical notions, the comparison of human beings to different sorts of plants. We, we're singing Psalm 1. The righteous man is like a tree planted by tr- streams of water, which yields its fruit in his season. His leaves also don't wither, and whatever he does prospers. Okay, Men, a righteous man is like a prosperous fruit-bearing tree, that remains young and fresh even into old age. Psalm 92, uh, the righteous are like trees planted in the house of the Lord uh, that remain green even in old age because they're receiving the, the uh, they're watered by the, the blessing of God. Uh, fruitful, good, 
healthy trees are like righteous men. Um, there are other kinds of plants, brambles, thorns, thistles, that represent other kinds of people. After, after, the, after the fall, the Lord says to Adam and Eve uh, that the land will produce thorns and thistles. I think that's literal. The land is going to spring up with uh, weeds and unproductive plants that make it difficult uh, for the productive plants to grow. But uh, the Lord is also saying that you're going to be cursed with a bramble-like, a thistle-like, thorn-like people. And they're going to make it difficult for the righteous trees to grow and flourish. They're going to be parasites on the righteous trees. Uh, they're going to, uh, you know, in, uh, in the southern United States, there is a plant called kudzu, K-U-D-Z-U, which was imported into the United States, I think, from somewhere in Asia. Uh, and it was imported in order to be a, uh, I think it's used for uh, feed for, for hogs, for pigs. Um, but somebody underestimated uh, the power of kudzu. And kudzu took over uh, the southern United States. Uh, it's, it's a weed, a vine. And kudzu will grow up on a tree and just envelop a tree. It will envelop, uh, you know, you, you might have, a, uh, if you have a, uh, a hedge of uh, berry bushes, the kudzu will come and just take over and swarm and smother the other things, okay? So um, you have people like that, okay? So which kind of person do you want to be your king? Of course, the trees in the parable want the productive trees to be king. The olive tree, the fig tree, the, the vine. You be our king because you're producing fruit. You're healthy. Problem is, the healthy trees are busy producing fruit and being healthy. And the only plant that is, has the spare time to be king is the bramble. Um, obviously, uh, Jotham is talking about Israel. Israel is looking for a king. All of the good candidates refuse, uh, don't want to be king. They want to produce grapes and wine, and they want to produce figs, and uh, they want to produce uh, uh, olives and oil, uh, wine that gladdens the heart of God and man. God is cheered by wine, apparently. Um, they don't want to be king. The, the worst possible candidates are the ones that want to rule. Okay. Uh, fortunately, that's not always the case, but there's a, there's a pretty grim picture of political life being presented in this little parable, not just for Israel, but I think more broadly, that it's often the people who uh, are low, uh, violent, dangerous, unproductive people who are most ambitious for power and have the, as I said, the spare time. They aren't, they aren't producing anything else. And so they're uh, ready to um, burn against the great and high trees, the cedars of Lebanon. Okay, that's a prophecy in the context of Judges 9, that's a prophecy of what's gonna happen uh, to uh, 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 Abimelech. Because Abimelech, he's already initially allied with Shechem. Shechem is his basis, base of power. Uh, but then in verse 23, we learn that the Lord sends an evil spirit between Abimelech and the men of Shechem. So there's, uh, the Lord uh, 
turns the men of Shechem against Abimelech. Just as the, in the previous chapter, uh, previous uh, couple of chapters, we had the, the Midianites fighting each other, turning uh, the enemies against each other. They've been in an alliance, but now the Lord is turning them into enemies. Uh, and during the battle that um, breaks out between uh, Abimelech and, um, and the men of Shechem, uh, that climaxes with this scene at the end of chapter 9. When the leaders of the Tower of Shechem heard, the, heard of it, so Abimelech uh, fought, uh, fought against the city, captured the city, killed the people who were in it, within it, and raised the city, and so did with salt. Okay. Uh, he's, uh, taken, uh, he's carried out a kind of carob warfare against his uh, former allies who have become his enemies. When the leaders of the Tower of Shechem heard of it, they entered into the inner chamber of the temple of El Barith, and it was told to Abimelech that all the leaders of the Tower of Shechem were gathered together. And Abimelech went up to Mount Zalman. He and all the people were with him. And Abimelech took an axe in his hand and cut down a branch from the trees and lifted it, laid it on his shoulder. Then he said to the people who were with him, What you've seen me do, hurry and do likewise. The people also cut down each man his branch and followed Abimelech and put them on the inner chamber and set the inner chamber on fire over those inside so that all the men at the Tower of Shechem also died, about a thousand men and women. That's the fire breaking out from the bramble against the cedars of Lebanon, which is what Jotham said would happen. When if, if, you make bramble, if you make a bramble a king, then you can expect the, the high and productive trees to be destroyed. And then he's going to go against another city, uh, Thebes. Abimelech went to Thebes and camped against it, captured it. But there was a strong tower in the center of the city, and all the men and women who were the leaders of the city fled there and shut themselves in, uh, in they went up to the roof of the tower. So Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and, appro- and approached the entrance of the tower to burn it with fire. He's going to burn another tower. But a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head, crushing his skull. And he asks the, his armor bearer to sl- slay him, and he does. Okay. Uh, we're going to have another scene like this in Samuel right at the end of 1 Samuel, a king, not who's been crushed by a millstone, but a king who's dying, who asks his armor bearer to, to, to uh, kill him. Uh, that's Saul. So Saul, at the end of his life, has become a kind of a, another Abimelech. Uh, but I want to uh, highlight the fact that uh, Abimelech dies by, a, by what uh, uh, the medical community would call massive head trauma. A millstone dropped from a tower on top of your head, you're not going to survive that. His head is crushed. Not the only uh, uh, evil ruler in the book of Judges who had his head crushed. Right? Uh, there's also Sisera, who had his head crushed by jail. This is back in Judges chapter 4. And uh, Deborah and Barak are, are fighting against uh, the Canaanites uh, jail entices Sisera into her tent, puts him to sleep, and then pounds a tent peg through his head, crushing his skull. Death by massive head trauma. David's going to do this. Uh, David's going to crush the head of Goliath and then remove the head of Goliath with his sword. Uh, this, is a, this is a recurring scene, a recurring uh, way of death in the Bible. God's enemies have their heads crushed. And it goes back uh, uh, fairly obviously to Genesis 3 
uh, with the uh, promise that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the seed of the serpent. There'll be enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Uh, you shall bruise him on the heel, but he shall crush your head. Or the same verb is used. Bruise him on the heel, bruise your head. The, serpent is, the serpent's head is crushed. And these are all serpent-like kings whose heads are crushed. Um, and uh, this is a, uh, ultimately Jesus is the one who comes to, as the seed of the woman, to crush the serpent's head. But these are different images of that ultimate victory that we find scattered throughout the Old Testament. Okay, uh, I don't think I'm going to get done with Judges as I had hoped. Um, so I'm going to say just a few things about Samson and end for the morning, and then we'll uh, finish off Judges um, Finish off Judges at, uh, at the beginning of the afternoon session. I don't know if I'll be able to get through it or not. Let me, let me, let me just get started, and let's find out, shall we? We'll find out together. Uh, on your notes, I have an outline uh, from David Dorsey's book, the one I've mentioned, uh, uh, Literary Structure of the Old Testament, an outline of uh, the uh, judgeship of Samson, which goes from chapter 13 to 16 in Judges. And uh, mainly what I want to highlight here is the, the uh, fact uh, that uh, Samson is uh, a, a hero um, not a buffoon, not an idiot, but a hero of uh, what Hebrews calls faith. Um, Abraham lived by faith. Moses lived by faith. Rahab acted by faith. Hebrews 11.32, what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David and Samuel and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign enemies to flight. Uh, Samson, along with Gideon, Barak, and Jephthah, the guy who has reputedly sacrificed his daughter, I don't think so, but that's what he's accused of, uh, they're all described as uh, heroes of faith in the same line of faith as we have uh, Noah and Abel and Enoch and Abraham and all the other heroes of the Old Testament. Samson is among those. And the only reason the, the writer of the Hebrews doesn't elaborate on Samson is he's running out of time. So time would fail me, okay. Um, maybe he's running out of papyrus also. Uh, papyrus is scarce. So that, that's the, that's the uh, New Testament reference. I think it's the only explicit New Testament reference to Samson. And he's included with the heroes of faith. So that gives us the primary perspective for viewing the life of Samson. Uh, not as an uh, idiot, buffoon, uh, uncontrolled, uh, violent, uh, sexually driven uh, anti-hero, but as a hero of the faith. Not a perfect man. We've already said Gideon is in that list too. And I've already pointed out to Gideon's flaws. Pointed out Gideon's flaws. But still, Gideon is a hero of the faith. David sinned. David sinned massively, but still he's in there. Uh, 
Samson is in there in spite of his flaws and sin, but the predominant picture that we get from uh, Hebrews 11 is that he's a, uh, he's a man of faith and a hero. Uh, and I think in order, to, uh, in order to understand how that's the case, uh, we need to have some sense of what the, uh, what the situation is in Israel at the time that Samson is born and the time that he's uh, engaging in his activities. Uh, as I mentioned at the beginning of the, uh, of the lecture, uh, Samson and Samuel and probably Jephthah overlap. Uh, Jephthah is uh, a little bit earlier, but Samuel and Samson are basically living during the same time period. Both of them dealing with the Philistine oppression. Philistines are new on the, uh, on the stage of Israel's uh, history. They're, they're, they're a new oppressor, perhaps newly arrived to that area of the world. Uh, according to According to Genesis 10, which is the table of nations, Philistines are related to uh, Mitzrayim. Mitzrayim is the Hebrew name for Egypt. The Philistines in Egypt are kind of cousins. And every time you see the Philistines doing things in the Bible, you should think, uh, this is, uh, we should, you should think back to Egypt and what happened to Israel in Egypt, because this is going to be a kind of a, a re repeat of Egyptian slavery and liberation from slavery. So when David goes to the land of the Philistines, yeah, he's in another Egyptian exile, and then he comes out in a new exodus. Uh, and uh, when the plagues come on the Philistines, when the ark is being transported from Philistine city to Philistine city, that's, again, that's, uh, there's, a, there's a kind of suitability, a fittingness to that, because the Philistines are Egyptians, okay, uh, or at least uh, related to the Egyptians. So uh, the Philistines have come in, they're dominating Israel, but the domination of Israel is not an oppressive one. In fact, that's been true of a number of, a number of the uh, nations that have come in. So clearly, the, the men of the city of Gideon are not too uncomfortable with the Midianites. They've begun to worship the Midianite god. Uh, uh, Gideon's own father, Joash, has a, uh, a Baal altar in his, on his own property. So they've become comfortable with being slaves to another, uh, to another people. And that's what's happened with the Philistines. Philistine oppression is a long one. And Israel has settled in. And they're comfortable in their slavery. And part of what Samson does is to provoke the Philistines, which makes the life of the Israelites uncomfortable. But that's the same thing that Moses does. When Moses goes to Pharaoh, he demands that Pharaoh let Israel go three days into the wilderness to, to celebrate a feast to the Lord. Uh, and Pharaoh's immediate response is, you've got to make bricks without straw. You have too much time on your hands to be thinking about going off three days into the wilderness. Now you have to do more work. And who objects to Moses? All the Israelites come to Moses and say, what are you doing? Yeah, uh, we're slaves. Yeah, sure, sure, we're slaves. We don't like being slaves, but it's even worse now. So stop it. Now lay off, Moses. Don't make, the, don't, make the, don't make Pharaoh hate us. And that's exactly the same dynamic that's going on in the story of Samson. Samson is doing things that provoke the Philistines. And in response to those provocations, the Philistines bear down more on the Israelites and the Israelites go to Samson and say, cut it out, will you? 
Stop doing all this stuff. Okay. Uh, uh, Samson is a disruptive force in Israel, but it's a, a needed disruption because Israel should not be comfortable worshiping the idols of the Philistines and living comfortably with the Philistines. That's not the way they should be living. They should be following the Lord, worshiping the Lord, and not become kind of second-class Philistines. Samson makes that more difficult for them to live comfortably in, uh, under Philistine rule. Uh, so uh, you know, the, the, does that partly by doing provocative uh, actions. Uh, he does it partly by uh, provocative speech. He's a riddler. He's, a, he's somebody who makes up riddles and rhymes uh, and uh, sometimes riddles and rhymes that are at the expense of, that are, uh, have uh, some dimension of mockery against the Philistines. I think there's an analogy here between the way that Samson interacts with and describes the Philistines and what Jesus does in the Gospels in relation to the Pharisees and scribes. Okay. Uh, uh, when, uh, if, if Jesus is right, let's stipulate Jesus is right. Jesus is right about the Pharisees. They neglect the weightier matters of the law, mercy, justice, and truth. If you're an Israelite, and, and, the, and the Pharisees are the, good, the best of Jews in the first century, the Sadducees are even worse. Uh, they, they're even less obedient to the law than the Pharisees are. But the Pharisees are obedient to the law in a way that misses the, the, the main point of the law. So if you're a faithful Israelite, take Mary and Joseph or Simeon in, that, in those circumstances, um, and um, uh, you know that the Pharisees are wicked men you know that the Sadducees are only interested in maintaining their power in the priesthood. Um, and you hope for somebody to come and expose them. You can't, or you don't think you can. Uh, you're just a lowly nobody. Who are you to take on the religious establishment? But then Jesus comes along. And Jesus says, you're hypocrites. And Jesus starts telling stories where the bad guys in the stories are the Pharisees, like the elder brother in the, in the parable of the, good, uh, of the uh, prodigal son. Jesus tells a parable about an elder brother who grumbles when his father receives uh, a prodigal, prodigal son with joy at a feast where the Pharisees are grumbling about Jesus receiving prodigals into the father's joy. He's telling a story about a complaining elder brother to people who are complaining. And suddenly, the, you know, the faithful around Jesus say, yeah, exactly what we've been thinking all this time. But Jesus says it out loud. He's willing to uh, you know, take all the opposition. He's willing to be the, the flashpoint and say out loud what all these faithful Israelites have been thinking. You know, there's, there, there are thousands of faithful Israelites because as soon as, uh, as, soon as uh, Jesus dies and rises and the Spirit comes, they're converting. You've got 3,000 people in Pentecost. They're Jews. Who do you think those people are? These are not people who were uh, on the, necessarily on the side of the priest who put Jesus to death. Come, you know, yeah, Jesus is the Messiah. So uh, Jesus becomes a kind of folk hero 
because he's saying out loud what uh, the faithful in Israel already were thinking, and he's doing provocative things, healing on the Sabbath. Whoa. Doing good things on the Sabbath. <laughs> Can't do that. Okay. Jesus knows that he's provoking the Pharisees, and he does it deliberately. And it, uh, there's, I think that's what the, I elaborate on that more than I intended to, but that's the same dynamic that's going on with Samson. Samson becomes a kind of folk hero for those who don't like the Philistines, who want to follow the Torah, who want to worship Yahweh, but are too weak or perhaps too cowardly to take action themselves. And then uh, Samson galvanizes them, and he makes things uncomfortable for the people who are well-established under the Philistine rule, but he becomes a folk hero for those people who are oppressed by the Philistines. Okay. Uh, and that's, that's a good thing. There are times when that's exactly what uh, the church needs, is a provoker in order to make things uncomfortable because we can easily get too comfortable. So that's one, uh, one dimension of Samson that I think we, uh, that, I think that, that uh, gives us a perspective on understanding his ministry. Uh, the other thing I want to say is, uh, and maybe I'll end with this. Uh, no, I want to say two things. Uh, I'll say Samson is the most spiritual man in the Old Testament. That's in your notes. Um, the most spirit-filled man in the Old Testament. Let that sink in. Uh, you know, he's a, uh, he's, what by that I mean literally, he is the man in the Old Testament who receives the spirit most often other judges are clothed with the spirit as they go out to battle. Um, uh, other, other references to the, to the uh, filling or gift of the spirit. It happens four times to Samson. You ha I have the references down there on your notes. Samson is clothed or filled with the spirit four times. Uh, every time the spirit comes in judges, somebody gets hurt. The spirit is the spirit of war. And what he inspires in the judges is a kind of battle frenzy. Uh, and Samson is the most spirit-inspired warrior in the book of Judges. Uh, that's the spirit that we received. It's not a different spirit. Okay? And if we aren't uh, inspired for spiritual war, uh, then we need to be filled with the Spirit again because that's what the Spirit does. Okay. That's what it does for Samson. And even the, the, uh, the filling of the Spirit occurs in unusual, unexpected places in the Samson narrative. Uh, Judges 13.25, the Spirit of Yahweh began to stir him in Mahanedan between Zorah and Eshtael. Chapter break. Uh, tip for reading the Bible, uh, don't believe the chapter breaks. They weren't part of the original text. Okay. So it looks like the spirit of the Lord comes. If you're doing your daily reading, you might stop there because it's the end of a chapter. And the next day you come back and Samson went down to Timnah and saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. Oh, Samson's about to fall. Let's remove the chapter break. And you have, the spirit of Yahweh began to stir Samson, and Samson went down to Timnah and saw a woman among the Philistines. And then the story of David offer, uh, uh, Samson offering marriage to this Philistine girl. Okay. 
this one of the it looks like the effect of the filling of the spirit is for him to go and ally himself with this particular Philistine family. Now that's weird. We would have to explain that, but uh, that's if you remove the chapter break, then the spirit is driving him to do that. The spirit is involved in that decision. Okay, so it possibly it could be a matter of the spirit driving him into a situation where he's being tested and perhaps he's failing the test. Another way to read it, this is what uh, James Jordan does in his commentary. He thinks that there's an actual uh, offer of a saving alliance with at least this particular Philistine family. So the, the, uh, we saw already in Joshua, and we'll see it very prominently in Ruth, Israel is not supposed to be impervious to Gentile inclusion. They're not supposed to have impermeable walls around them. Gentiles are supposed to be welcomed into Israel if they believe, right? either as complete proselytes, you know, they, they completely come into Israel, or as Gentiles who remain Gentiles but uh, are associated with Israel and worship the God of Israel. Uh, so uh, Jordan interprets it, and that's, that would be my inclination to interpret this as, uh, a, and uh, Samson uh, put it in, in modern terms, it's kind of an evangelistic uh, offer on Samson's part. Uh, the last thing I want to say, uh, if, if, you, if you will still listen to me after that, to, <laughs> if you'll still trust me, uh, is to point out the various ways in which Samson is a type of Christ. Uh, and I'll just, uh, this is on your notes, um, I'll just I'll rattle them off without much explanation. Um, uh, a miracle birth, right? A birth to a, a, a barren mother. One of many miracle births in the Bible. Uh, but pointing ahead to the great miracle birth of the virgin birth. Uh, I've already described how the ministry of Samson resembles the ministry of Jesus in his provocation and in the, uh, the way that it, uh, G, uh, Samson comes to represent the opposition to the, un, to the unfaithful leaders of Israel. Um, yet he's betrayed by his brothers. Um, Samson is betrayed by Israelites, not just by Philistines. He's betrayed into the hands of the Philistines by Israelites. Uh, Samson does fall and sins, and he loses his eyes, but the last event in his life is his death, which is the greatest victory of his entire career. So a victory by death is another uh, sign or uh, pointer to the, uh, to the, to the greater judge, uh, the greater Samson, Jesus Christ. Okay. Yeah, I, I think that, uh, well, uh, who are you thinking of besides Abimelech, that, or besides Gideon, who takes on many wives among the judges? Oh, okay, in the, in the, into the king, right. Okay, into the time of the kings, correct. Um, yeah, I, uh, I, I think of that, that, I think about that differently. I think that uh, you could say Jesus' entire purpose and in his work uh, is to secure a bride uh, for an ultimate marriage. So the church is his bride. So he's, he's assembling a bride, he's gathering a bride, he's purifying a bride. Uh, that's, that's what his ministry is all about. So I think the, the fact that he doesn't get married to a, in, you know, he doesn't have a married relationship to a, an individual woman, uh, it's because he has another bride, the corporate bride of the church that he's, that he's seeking. And, and uh, that, I think the, the, the king's... Uh, Polygamy does factor into that. Uh, the fact that Jesus has, uh, Jesus has one bride. He's the true king who doesn't multiply brides. 
Uh, he has one bride, and the church is called to be that one bride, uh, called to be uh, united as one body, as one bride. And so I think there is, a, there is definitely a contrast between the polygamy and the monogamy of, of the kings and of Jesus. Delilah, right. Yeah, I think that's, that's a good point. Yeah, Samson also is, that's a, that's a, that is an unfaithfulness on Samson's part, that he has multiple, uh, only one that he's really married to, but he has multiple women, yes. And obviously his, uh, I don't mean to ignore the sexual sin of Samson. That, that is something that leads to his downfall, his uh, sexual desires. But I think that that needs to be seen as analogous to David's sin with Bathsheba and not just uh, dismiss Samson as nothing but a, uh, uh, an adulterer. He's a hero who is uh, deeply flawed by, and by his sexual sin.